Uh, this is uh, with permission from Christian History Magazine, so it's not a bootleg. We're legal, in case uh, you wonder. And uh, you might want to glance at this about George Whitfield. I'd like to ask you uh, to listen. Uh, you may want to turn, but I'm only going to read one verse, and that's Romans 1.16. The Apostle Paul wrote and said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Uh, I, w I want to tell you today about a, a man who played a key role in the founding of our country. Now, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans is a kind of Christian manifesto. It's a summary of what uh, we believe. Uh, it's a manifesto of freedom through Christ. It is the plainest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. And the message is that we, as humans, are born in sin and slavery, but through Christ we can be set free from that. And Paul begins uh, the letter of Romans by describing himself as an apostle sent with the gospel. Uh, just briefly in verse 7, he, he tells us we are loved by God, we are called by saints, called as saints, we are recipients of God's grace and peace. And then he tells these fellow believers that he thanks God for them, he prays for them, he longs to see them, and he's often planned to visit them. And then he makes it clear in verses 14 to 16, I read verse 16, why he wants to preach the gospel in the city of Rome. He's hoping to come there and to preach. And he says that the gospel is a debt to the world. Now, that's a strange statement. The gospel is a debt to the world. That's in 14 and 15. And he says, I am bound or I am under obligation. I am a debtor. Now, you and I can get into debt in uh, at least two ways. First is to go borrow. Say you go to uh, a bank, a lending agency, and you borrow $5,000. And you would be in debt at that point to pay that institution back that money. Now, the second way to be in debt is for a person to entrust something to you that you are to give to someone else. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the first person, but they hand you $5,000 and say, I want you to deliver this to Joe over here. Now, that makes you a debtor to that person, to the person to whom you are to deliver it. In the first case, I get myself in debt by borrowing. But in the second case, my friend has put me in debt by entrusting something to me. It is the second example of which Paul is talking about that he's in debt. He has not borrowed anything from the Romans, but God has entrusted to him the gospel which he is to deliver to the Romans. So he says, I am your debtor. To deliver this. Jesus Christ entrusts us with the gospel. And so we are debtors to the world, uh, even though we are not like the original apostles. So if the gospel has come to you, if you believed in that, if you've trusted in Christ, if you've embraced him as your savior, <clears throat> then we have no liberty. You, have, you are not at freedom to keep it to yourself. Good news is for sharing. <clears throat> so we are under obligation to make it known to others. The gospel also, it says in verse 16, is the power of God for salvation. This is Paul's second incentive to preach the gospel. Uh, Jesus warned his disciples not to be ashamed of him. And Paul had known this temptation. He told the Corinthians that he came to them in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. He knew that the message of the foolishness of the gospel is, a, is foolishness to some, some and it's a stumbling block to others. So whenever the gospel goes forth, whenever it's preached, it arouses opposition, and sometimes it will bring ridicule. 
So how did Paul overcome this temptation to be ashamed of the gospel? He remembered that that message of the gospel, which some people despise for its weakness, is in fact the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So saving faith, you might say, is the great equalizer. Everyone who is saved is saved in exactly the same way, by faith. And that goes for Jews, Gentiles alike. There's no distinction between them in respect to salvation. So today, as believers, we need to see the gospel as a debt to discharge, and it's also a power to experience. And it's only when we understand both these things that we can say with Paul, I'm not ashamed of it, and therefore I'm eager to share it. Now, there is no doubt, if you read history, that the preaching of that gospel played a very key role in the birth of our nation 233 years ago. Though it's overlooked today, and that's not politically correct in many cases, but one of the persons whom God used in a very mighty way that many of you have never heard of was George Whitfield. Sometimes people call him Whitefield. I think the correct pronunciation from the two volumes of the biography I've read is Whitfield, where you didn't say the H, George Whitfield. He's not a stranger to students of American history. <clears throat> in Paul Johnson's big, thick book, A History of the American People, he says this, The Great Awakening was thus the proto-revolutionary event, the formative moment in American history preceding the political drive for independence and making it possible. Before the Great Awakening, each colony had seen its outward links as running chiefly to London. Each tended to be a little self-contained world of its own. But the Great Awakening altered this separateness. As a symbol of this, George Whitfield was the first American public figure, with emphasis on American, especially well-known from Georgia to New Hampshire. He goes on to say the American Revolution could not have taken place without this religious background. Now, I want to, you to know about George Whitfield for two reasons, how God used him, first of all, how God used him in the life of our own country, and secondly, how the gospel brought hope in a time of darkness, much like our own, and how there is hope whenever the gospel goes forth. Let me tell you about his early life. This is just for your own information. I'm not going to follow this sheet. So if you're looking for my outline on there, it's not there. These are just some interesting facts I want you to see about George Whitfield. He was born in England on December the 16th, 1714. He was the youngest child of Thomas and Elizabeth Whitfield. His father died soon after George was born, and his mother remarried. And that marriage was disastrous, and it resulted in divorce. And so it left, that divorce left Mother Elizabeth with seven children and the ownership of a tavern-slash-inn called the Bell Inn. Now, two facts were major impressions in the life of George. First was the influence of his mother, and second was his infatuation with English theater. From his mother, he inherited a strong ambition to be somebody in the world, to make something of himself. And most likely, she thought he would, and he thought he would find that in the service in the established Anglican Church, the Church of England. Now, from the theater and his interest in English theater, he inherited an ability for drama, that he later took into the pulpit. As a boy, he read plays continually. He was a natural-born actor. He had a special gift for dramatic self-expression. And he would later apply those 
uh, gifts and abilities in drama to preaching with incredible results. Through the efforts of his mother, he was granted a uh, servant spot at Pembroke College in Oxford. And it was there that he met John and Charles Wesley. He joined a small group um, that they call the Holy Club. It's basically what we call a small discipleship group today. And he said it was during that time in that small group while he was there at Oxford that he was born again. And he wanted immediately to preach to others so that they could experience the conversion like he had experienced that. And so with encouragement from John and Charles Wesley, he determined to become a missionary here in the new colony called Georgia. In the summer of 1736, this I'm going to tell you about his early preaching ministry. While waiting to embark for Georgia, Whitfield was ordained a deacon in the Anglican Church, and he began to preach in and around London. And the response from the beginning was overwhelming. Huge crowds turned out to hear this boy preacher with such dramatic delivery. And he had his own unique style. He used tears. He used heightened emotions. He used uh, big bodily gestures. But above all, he preached the message of the experience of the new birth. And that was very unique. And his preaching drew attention from the press. And this was fine with Whitfield because he had an instinct for publicity. To increase newspaper coverage, he published his first sermon in 1737 in London. And it's entitled, The Nature and Necessity of Our Regeneration or New Birth in Christ Jesus. And the sermon's theme was not so new, but behind it was an electrifying delivery. Now... Once, when preaching about eternity, he invited his startled listeners to imagine heaven. Now, I'm, this is difficult for me even to read it to you because uh, I am so unlike Whitfield would have been in dramatic delivery. But just get a sense from the words. Lift up your eyes frequently toward the mansions of eternal bliss. And with an eye of faith, like the great Stephen, see the heavens opened. And the Son of Man, with his glorious army of departed saints, sitting and solacing themselves in eternal joys, and with unspeakable comfort, looking back on their past sufferings and self-denials, as so many glorious means which exalted them to such a crown. Hark! Methinks I hear them chanting their everlasting hallelujahs, and spending an eternal day in echoing four triumphant songs of joy. Do you not long, my brethren, to join this heavenly choir? So he was preaching directly to the hearts of the hearers in a very engaging fashion. Now, his first trip to colonial America, he departed for Georgia on February the 2nd, 1738. He was 24 years old at the time. And his plan was to come to Georgia and to become a missionary in Georgia, just to be a permanent resident missionary here like the Wesleys. But that was not to be. Soon after uh, he arrived for the first time here in Georgia, he concluded his calling was to be an itinerant preacher and to travel around up and down the, the uh, eastern seaboard in colonial America. Arnold Dallimore is the, the biographer of George Whitfield. He did two volumes that literally they're about that thick. And, and they're, they're very, very engaging. They're, they're not boring at all. And he wrote there, and I read both of them. He said, it's evident that Whitfield felt the challenge of the great new world. Colonial America was just a ribbon of settlement, which though seldom more than 50 miles in width, stretched for 1,300 miles along the Atlantic coast. 
from Maine in the north to Georgia's Fort Frederica in the south. The total population, exclusive of the Indians, was something under a million, and of these, about 150,000 were slaves. The largest cities were Boston, New York, and Philadelphia, each of which had between 12 and 14,000 inhabitants. The next largest was Charleston's, Charleston, with about 6,000, and Williamsburg was somewhat less. Although Whitfield could not have been aware of the publicity which the American papers had given to his work in England, there can be little doubt that he foresaw an extensive ministry awaiting him in the colonies. Now, Georgia would remain important to him as the site of an orphanage house that he founded for wayward boys. That orphanage house became Whitfield's American home. It's in Savannah. It's still there today. Uh, and it also was a financial burden for the rest of his life, up till the day he died. He selected Philadelphia as his first American preaching stop. Once he left Georgia, he went there. And here, Philadelphia was a major port city. It had a thriving market economy. It was the most cosmopolitan city in colonial America at that time. And so on November the 6th, 1739, Whitfield preached at Christ Church to, quote, a numerous congregation. And it was very soon after that that churches could no longer hold the vast crowds to hear him. And so he went outdoors and he began to preach outside in the fields where he was most comfortable preaching. Every stop along Whitfield's trip from Philadelphia to New York and back was marked by record audiences, often exceeding the populations of the towns in which he preached. Not only were the crowds unprecedented in size, they were virtually spellbound. Whitfield remarked, even in London, I have never described or observed so profound a silence as among the people that came to hear him preach here. Now, Whitfield's success in his public ministry was not matched in his private family life. Whitfield uh, loved a woman that he knew in England, and she would have married him. But he had this view that's still around today that if you're really committed to Christ, marriage becomes a threat to that. And so he would not marry her, and she married somebody else, and he basically lived the rest of his life as a brokenhearted man. Uh, but he, he did marry later, and, and he married an older widow named Elizabeth James. And from all indication, the marriage was never a joyful one. She suffered four miscarriages, and the one child that was actually born died four months later. Um, during that time, he was gone so much of the time. Not only did he preach in England and colonial America, he also made 14 preaching trips to Scotland. And remember, they traveled by ships at that time. And it was, it was hard. It was difficult. In Scotland, the crowds were huge. One Saturday in Scotland in a small village, he and other preachers estimated that there were 20,000 people that were there for those services that stretched well into the night. Well, let me go back now and, and uh, describe how he became an American hero. He returned to America seven times. Can you imagine? 13 crossings because he ultimately died here in America. But, you know, seven times back and forth. With every trip, he became more popular. Before his whirlwind tours were complete, virtually, now listen to this, virtually every man, woman, and child in colonial America had heard him preach at least once. Isn't that amazing? No television, no radio, no CDs, no, no iPods. 
virtually every person had heard him preach at least once. And so he truly, <laughs> this sounds a little crass, he was America's first pop hero, American cultural hero. They saw him as an American more so than being British. His final preaching tour in the colonies was in 1770. It was late summer. He was in New England, and it was on a Saturday morning, September the 29th. He preached in Portsmouth and immediately set out to go to Newburyport, Massachusetts. Eyewitnesses said he was very ill. He had to be helped on a horse. And then uh, he went despite the pleadings and, and uh, request of friends and, and others not to go. His last public sermon took place that afternoon in an open field. His text was, examine yourselves to see if you're of the faith. And his subject was the new birth. Again, it was the new birth. That was his continuing subject. Now, that sermon would be his last public words to a large crowd. That night, in the house where he was staying, a group gathered, and he spoke to them by candlelight for just a few moments. It really wasn't even a sermon. And by 7 a.m. the next morning, he was dead, probably from some form of pneumonia. A man who was uh, at Whitfield's Orphan House here in Savannah, when he learned of the evangelist's death, he wrote, you have no conception of the of the effect of Mr. Whitfield's death upon the inhabitants of the province of Georgia. All the black cloth in the stores was bought up. The pulpits of the churches, the branches, the organ lofts, the pews of the governor and the council were covered in black. The governor of the state and the council in deep mourning convened at the state house and went in process to the church and were received by the organ, organ playing a funeral dirge. Now, here are some lessons I take from the life of George Whitfield. Uh, several factors come to mind when you try to think of why this person's ministry was so fruitful. And these are my observations, but one is he believed the gospel and he was unashamed to proclaim it to anyone who would listen. In Whitfield's day, the Anglican church had taken a very moralistic approach to salvation, pretty much like many of our churches today. Just be a good person. And so rather than stressing justification by faith, what they stressed in their preaching, if you'd even call it stressed, was a moral life of good works lived in hope of being accepted by God someday. That was basically it. Works were the way to heaven, they said. Well, Whitfield came to see that as blasphemous and destructive nonsense. And he didn't waste any time saying so in public. He said of that type of thinking, this is the most common evil that was ever under the sun, to think that you'll go to heaven by being a good person. So he focused not on human works, but on the life and death of Christ. And he said, behold, what man could not do, Jesus Christ, the son of his father's love, undertakes to do for him, his righteousness. So the Lord Jesus is our righteousness. This is a gospel, as he said. This is the only way of finding acceptance with God. And he lived with an urgency to communicate that message to others. He said, quote, God forbid that I should ever travel with anyone for a quarter of an hour without speaking of Christ to them. He, he practiced personal evangelism. A second observation, he used his gifts and abilities to the fullest to get the message out. He said, there's not a thing on the face of the earth 
that I abhor so much as idleness or idle people. He worked hard, probably too hard. He pushed himself to the point of exhaustion. In the, the uh, biography I spoke of, Arnold Dallymore's biography, he gave an overview of, of Whitfield's ministry in 1750. At that time, he was pastoring in what was called the Tabernacle in London. He began preaching at 6 a.m. each morning. Then he would preach again at 6 p.m. every day except Saturday. He preached three or four times each Sunday, several other times during the week, sometimes conducted funerals and weddings and often counseled people. He maintained a large correspondence with me 